We're so thankful for the, the presence of each and every individual that's here this evening that you have invested your Sunday afternoon and the early part of the evening in a way to come together with those of like precious faith to exalt and honor and magnify the name of God and to in fact inspire, encourage one another by way of singing and praying and even considering by way of study a part of God's precious and perfect will. In fact, you may notice on the wall to my left, we're going to take up our con continue our study that we started a couple of weeks ago. Let me take a moment while we're making preparation for that and make one additional announcement. I failed to remind Jonathan of this so that this isn't uh, any, any uh, forgetfulness on his part. Uh, as he mentioned of the gospel meetings, don't forget our gospel meeting starts five weeks from today. Now that isn't that long. Five weeks from today, May the 7th, starting that first Sunday in May, uh, Tim McHenry will be with us. Uh, he preaches for the Mount Gilead Church of Christ in Tompkinsville, Kentucky. He will be with us, and again, we're looking forward to that. So go ahead and put that on your prayer list. Pray for the success of that meeting. Pray for the various avenues, that it'll be exactly what would honor and exalt the blessed will of God. A History of the Bible, Part 2. As you and I noticed in our last study, we reminded ourselves of some dramatic truths. I've tried to highlight some of them. You'll notice there at the top of that particular slide. The most precious treasure that you and I can hold is a Bible. We'd be lost without it. It has within it the precious words that not only give us instruction whereby we may live correctly and hopefully here, but also it instills within us a, con a conviction, a confidence of all those things that lie beyond the grave. As often as you and I have thought about those matters, isn't it so that, of course, our present experience takes us up to the point of death? But yet, thankfully for the Word of God, it tells us about what's after it and how to prepare for it and how to live with hope and courage and how to be ready to, in fact, die in faith and to die peacefully and to die in such a way to go home to a blessed place of glory. As we study about the Bible continuing in this series, you'll notice at the bottom that some of the previous things that we noted about the Bible reminded us of its basic truths and facts, but there's so much more to be said, and we'll continue that tonight. This next slide continues that journey. Could I invite you to consider a word that you'll sometimes hear in relation to the Bible? Canon. Now, I know it sounds just like the thing you fire in time of war, but it's spelled differently. This one only has two, one in in the middle, and that one, of course, has two. But the canon of Scripture. On occasion, you will hear comments or at least statements about the canon of, of Scripture. There's a great deal of misunderstanding sometimes relative to it. So let's take a moment and be impressed again with what that phrase means and how that precious Word of God fulfills that idea. God's Word came to be written. Have you ever thought with a great deal of thankfulness how that God oversaw the realization of its writing? There was a time, right, when God communicated His will directly to individuals, those heads of the families, and He anticipated, in fact, demanded that they, by mouth, tell the other members of the family. How did Noah's sons, how were they instructed in ways of righteousness? What about Abraham's children? There wasn't any written Bible. 
God communicated His will to the fathers according to Hebrews 1 verse 1, and those fathers shared it with the other members of the family. Wouldn't our world be very different? Wouldn't your faithfulness be much different if that were the order of the day? If we had to depend upon someone else communicating with us all those things that we needed to ensure that we lived correctly. May I say to you, God rather quickly intended His will to be written. Would you consider with me Exodus 24.4? By this point... Moses, of course, had ascended Mount Sinai, and while on that mount, God communicated with him His will. And that text says, and Moses wrote. There immediately is a statement that here was the man of God who penned, who put, if you please, to writing consideration that which was the will of heaven. That is, however, not the only time. In Numbers 33.2, we have another reference to Moses writing something which was the Word of God. Finally, in Deuteronomy 32.1, one more time Moses wrote down these majestic statements from heaven, and he did so so the children of Israel could have them and they'd be preserved for them. God, you see, had such a will that He wished for His will to be written down. That saga continues in many other places in the Old Testament. In Joshua 8.31, we have record of the words Moses had written. The children of Israel soon recognized the cherished character of those words and they honored them and respected them. And they looked deeply upon the reality of what Moses had written. Later in Judges 3 verse 4, one more time, the things Moses had written... May I suggest that there have through the centuries been some who have had questions. Some have even thought writing was never invented until well after the time of Moses. My friend, that's not so. The Bible says Moses wrote, and there's no doubt he did. Jesus even affirmed, did he not, the things that Moses wrote? As you and I look even further in Luke 24, 44, the blessed words of our Master... He had already been crucified and resurrected. And as He visited with those two on the road to Emmaus, He shared with them by expounding upon the things of the Old Testament and what Moses had written. Jesus affirmed Moses wrote, and that settles the question, doesn't it? Finally, in John 7 verse 19, one more time our Savior highlighted the powerful character of the writings of Moses. Maybe to say all that is to say this... If Moses wrote things, so that covers several books of the Old Testament, but there's a lot more. Would you be impressed with, the Bible says Joshua on occasion wrote some things as well. Notice in Joshua 24, 26. So you and I one by one learned that God oversaw the writing by special individuals of certain things that would ultimately be a part of His preserved will. I mentioned the word others maybe with an especial eye toward 1 Samuel 10, 25. There we have another one who was writing, and the point simply being this. God's will, He intended it to become written, and so it was. As you and I continue that journey, that brings us back to this word canon. Note the definition with me, please. That word canon literally means something that's straight, such as a rod or a rule. 
In other words, it is a standard by which something else is measured, a standard by which something else is determined as straight and proper or right. No wonder it then is a standard by which something is tested. And it is in that vein that the Scriptures can well be referred to as the canon. I've tried to highlight that in the following way. This Word of God that you and I treasure so, this Word of God that is as it claims to be the Word of God, it is the standard that determines matters in morality. It's the standard or the rule by which correctness and rightness are themselves determined. Today, as you and I have so often thought about morality, men haven't been left to decide for themselves what's wrong and right when it comes to that because when men do what's right in their own eyes, it's a mess. And it has ever been so. This matter of the canon. Have you ever pondered the manner and the number of ways in which the Word of God can be at least checked or tested? Wouldn't you agree to the following thoughts with me? There are many, many statements in the Word of God, but many of them are concerning matters which themselves can at least be considered or tested or checked. Have you ever given thought to some of these? What about the historical attributes of the Word of God? As you in your mind run through the 66 books of the Bible, think about the number of times it makes reference to a historical circumstance such as nations, such as kings, such as cities. In other words, the Bible says there once was a city named Hatzor and that it was burned to the ground in Joshua 11, verse 11. Did that really happen? You and I should be impressed when the archaeologist Spade, upon the investigation of Hatzor, unquestionably determined the city was burned to the ground. It checks with the Bible. And may I say to you that the same is true with regard to every other such matter that has to this point been checked. When reference is made to kings, the Bible mentions a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't it fascinating that the secular records of ancient Assyria and Babylon both make reference to him? There really was a Babylonian monarch named Nebuchadnezzar and he reigned exactly according to the time period when the Bible says that he did. There's another element then that the Bible checks. To that we might add one more, the famous antiquity of Egypt. The nation of Egypt, of course, takes great pride in its antiquity and I suppose that's reasonable. But isn't it fascinating? The Bible testifies to the antiquity as well. And it's to that very place that, of course, Jacob went, he and his family, to withstand the terrible famine in the closing chapters of Genesis. I say all of that to say, if all of that is true, and all of those things that we could readily check have matched so well, shouldn't that give us confidence that the Bible is correct in every proclamation it makes? What about another one? Consider the geographical references in the Bible. Aren't you sometimes intrigued how humans are very poor students of geography sometimes? What really is north, we say it's south or east or some such thing. Or what really is down, we claim it to be up. Or maybe the location of a particular city is not the place in which we commonly think it is. There are even songs that are poured forth out of Nashville and other places where there are geographical blunders in it. 
Are there geographical blunders in the Bible? For instance, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus Himself in speaking taught about that circumstance and He said that there was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Is it really the case that Jericho is lower in elevation than Jerusalem? Have you ever thought about that? The Bible's right. Or in Acts 8 verse 26, when the Word of God says that there Philip was preaching and he went, there was a man who had traveled from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Is it really lower in elevation as you go from Jerusalem to Gaza? It is. Or maybe another example, what about the dozens of rivers mentioned in the Bible? You and I know the Jordan is a certainly a very famous one, but it's by no means the only one. For instance, in 2 Kings 5, in that memorable scene concerning Naaman, Naaman, you might remember at first, the Jordan is muddy. There are rivers in Damascus that are as good as this. Why can't I go dip in one of them? And he called them by name. Question, are there really rivers in Damascus with that name? And did they exist back then? They certainly did. One more time, what about the mountains of the Bible? There are so many Bible mountains mentioned. Question, are they located where the Bible writers say that they are? Do they have the characteristic properties? Have they been owned by the peoples who the Bible said they were? I've only mentioned one. What about that famous Edomite mountain, Mount Peor? Is that mountain located just where the Old Testament says that it is, and was it occupied by those descendants of Esau? It was. May I say to you again, if every one of these references check out consistently... And if we can have the greatest confidence with respect to the Bible's assertions in those matters, what about its assertions in all other matters? Let's try a third one. What about the cultural descriptions in the Bible? Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament especially how many differing tribes and peoples and cultures are mentioned? When the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan and they displaced the seven nationalities of people already there, did those peoples really exist? Or were they myths in the mind of a Bible writer? Archaeologists have dictated, determined, studied, and even thoroughly equipped our knowledge today in many ways with those peoples. They really existed. Late in the Old Testament, in the days of Amos and Hosea and the others, did the individuals involved then have the properties the Bible writer said that they did? Or as we come to the New Testament... Have you ever pondered the book of Acts? In 28 unforgettable chapters, Luke, the rather famed New Testament historian, sets before us an impressive array of factual consideration that can be checked because the records of the ancient Roman Empire, many of which can still appreciate the reality, and Luke was right. To say all of that is to say, if the Bible is right in every one of these ways that to this point the human family has been able to factually check, then shouldn't you and I have the greatest of conviction relative to all those spiritual truths that it also mentions? When it mentions that there's a place called heaven and hell, and what's required to get to that blessed place called heaven 
may I suggest to you, we can have the greatest of assurances and the greatest of confidences relative to the biblical truths on those matters, just like we can on all these other ways in which it has been checkable. The next slide will carry this journey a little bit further. For not only are those statements to be placed, we're continuing to think about that canon. Remember, a rule or a standard by which things can be determined as judged. So, if Moses wrote, and if Joshua wrote, and some others wrote, I wonder if these statements perhaps wouldn't be next to be considered. The time came when those writings of Moses were placed in a very special location. They were placed in the ark according to Deuteronomy 31.26. In other words, it was God's intent that they be preserved and watched over and highly regarded. Because after all, those things placed in the ark, that ark of the covenant I mean, they of course were intended to be watched over carefully for they were the centerpiece of the encampment of the children of Israel. But not only that, you'll notice later in the Old Testament references made to some additional writings simply besides the, those of Moses. In Isaiah 34, 16, as well as Daniel 9, verses 10 and following, references made to these other writings that were regarded as so special and keen and inspired. Maybe the next thought then should be this. So if there were these writings, some by Moses and some by Joshua and some by perhaps other writers, who collected them into one impressive volume? That is to say, a set of scrolls, and these are regarded as canon, and these others' writings of men are not. As nearly as we can perhaps tell from the Old Testament, it seems Ezra did that. Notice with me in Nehemiah 8 verse 5. When Ezra stood up, the priest, and he in fact preached before the people, it specifically says he brought the books. It would seem that Ezra then as that fit and ready scribe, that he was the one that God permitted and even equipped to collect the writings together at the time and recognize the canon, the canon of Scripture. Now, continuing that journey, may I ask you to note this piece of statement from Josephus. Now, keep in mind, Josephus was not an inspired writer. We each would agree to that. But as a historian, he says some many things that at least are rather intriguing and interesting. The Jewish historian says that there were no books added to those that Ezra had compiled since the time of Artaxerxes. Now notice, that means when you reach the latter Old Testament period, about the time of Esther and shortly thereafter, there were no more writings added. The canon had been completed. The Old Testament, that is. Now as you give thought to that, notice how that God had superintended not only the writing, but the collecting of those things that were to fit into His will, the canon of Old Testament Scripture. It's a rather interesting thing to notice. There were other writings that some people regarded as important, but they were never included as a part of the canon. You may have a Bible at your house. If it's a Catholic Bible, it certainly will be true. That Bible will have more books in its Old Testament than your Bible does. You and I treasure 39 Old Testament books from Genesis to Malachi. 
But again, there were other writings that some individuals regarded as very special and important, and some even chose to regard them on a virtual equal footing with the Old Testament books. But notice, Ezra never included them in, in the canon, and neither did the other individuals who were writing even as the time of Jesus approached. Sometimes those books are called the Apocrypha. And again, you can find copies of them. There's 14 or 15 of them, depending upon how the numbering is presented. But may I say, they're not inspired. They contain statements that contradict this, this book, and therefore we know they can't be right. And they can't be trusted. Now, they might be useful to read for historical reasons, but they are not on equal footing with the Word of God. Maybe it's fascinating to notice then that all of those original manuscripts and autographs, they have been lost. The human family does not have any original copies of the Old Testament. But notice what's there at the bottom of that slide. The God of heaven has made provision and there are some ancient manuscripts. Not the original ones, mind you, but ancient ones. And from them... Note these truths. There, for instance, is the Cairo Codex and the Leningrad Codex, both of which now came along quite a bit after the originals were written, admittedly. But nonetheless, these were preserved by God, and they are so rich in their presentation. They show us all those 39 Old Testament books they help us appreciate the character, the nature, the integrity of them. But not only that, please notice with me the work of the, Ma the Masoretic efforts. Perhaps you've heard me speak about them before in Bible classes and otherwise. Their work is absolutely impressive. That was the group of people who cherished so highly the words of the Old Testament that they prepared individuals who, again, would copy them. And that was the only way to copy the Word of God then. You didn't have a Xerox machine. There was no way to electronically copy it. It had to be copied letter by letter throughout the fullness of it. Think about the time-consuming nature of that work and think about how important it was. What if I miscopy it? Therefore, there arose a group of individuals known as the Masoretic Effort. As they copied the Word of God, they had a system of checks and balances whereby they could check it. Have I made a mistake in copying it? So they knew exactly how many of every one of the Hebrew letters were present. And when they finished copying a book, they'd go back and count them to make sure I haven't miscopied a letter anywhere. Not only did the number of letters appear, they knew exactly what the middle letter of the book was. And so they could count through, and if the letter that was supposed to be at the center wasn't, I've made an error. They'd destroy that copy and start all over. That's how highly they treasured the Word of God, intending to be very careful and very mindful of the fact it was the Word of God. You and I today owe quite a debt to those individuals who copied it with such meticulous character. Isn't it fascinating then that you begin to think about translations of that Old Testament Scripture? The first one that seems to be worthy of our note is the Septuagint. 
You and I know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But you and I know the time came when God's people didn't readily speak Hebrew anymore. Remember, they had been taken off into captivity in other places, and their children grew up speaking other languages besides Hebrew. And so the time came that the Old Testament Scriptures were translated, this so-called Septuagint, into Greek. Translated into Greek. Now may I suggest... Jesus and His apostles quoted from the Septuagint well over half the time they made any quotations. In other words, Jesus gave His stamp of approval on the reality and existence of this translation. You and I today also are thankful for translations. You and I can't read Hebrew or Greek. Aren't you thankful you have a Bible in English that you and I can open it and be apprised at what a treasure this true Word of God really is? Not only that, as we close that slide, one more time of reminder that as those copies were made by hand, you and I frequently encounter scribes, those individuals who were supposed doctors in the sense they could copy that Scripture and do that in that kind of way. Our emphasis so far tonight has been on the Old Testament. What about the New now, the canon, that word canon that I used earlier in relation to the old, let's now make application of that word to these sweet New Testament books as well. And let's base it in the following way. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus Himself, not long before He was crucified, He said, as He spoke to the apostles, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, shall guide you into all truth... As He was speaking to those apostles, He reminded them that they would be guided into all truth. In other words, they weren't going to be left to their own devices to figure out, to come up with, to decide the matters concerning truth. They were going to be guided. And that guidance, of course, reminds us that those truths came to be written. One more time, it was the plan and will of God that that be preserved in written form. In Romans 16, verse 22, for example, as Paul spoke concerning the book we call Romans, he said, Tertius wrote it. Now, Paul dictated it to him, but Tertius wrote it down. That isn't the only case. In 1 Peter 5, we have another reference. You'll notice here in verse 12 to the writing down of the Word of God. Whether it was first those Old Testament books, but now there are New Testament ones that are fitting into a category known as Scripture, a category known as a canon. Maybe it's fair to say that one more time, those New Testament documents, as they were copied, please take note that the original autographs have again been lost. We no longer have the original ones that were written. But inasmuch as there was a preservation of it because there were individuals who copied it and preserved it. We're going to talk more in a moment about some of those copies. But for now, may I impress you, and you'll notice on occasion the news brings before us stories such as this one from only about a year ago that there was a great deal of excitement, especially in the biblical as well as archaeological community, when a fragment was found of a section of the Word of God. 
And notice again, that was only within the last year or so. A significant fragment having a well-recognizable section of some part of the New Testament. It's an amazing thing. May we never lose our hunger for the Word of God. Didn't Jesus say, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5 verse 6. As you and I add to those considerations, I've listed the three most highly regarded ancient New Testament manuscripts. The so-called Vatican manuscript, the so-called Sinaitic manuscript, and finally the Alexandrian one. All three of them, again, are today existent. On occasion, I even give you indication about sometimes where they were discovered, and today, quite frankly, they're so highly regarded, it's difficult to even do much except walk in front of them in a museum. But at least they're there. But with it, let's add to that some additional considerations. That New Testament then, again, 27 books. Are there any more? The human family many times since the closing of that first century A.D., Many times have been assertions, and you perhaps have heard about apocryphal New Testament books, and there are dozens of them. Maybe you've heard about the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Barnabas. That's only two of many others that might be mentioned. May we each be impressed with they were not originally guarded, regarded by those apostles as a part of the canon, and they were rejected. And so they are not a part of that Bible that you and I treasure today. As you and I come near the close of that slide, thinking again about this New Testament set of documents, this question, I suppose, is an exceedingly fair one. Reliability. Now earlier I made a passing comment about things like cultures and rivers and historical attributes and other things that were checkable. But may I say, all of that really broaches the subject. Exactly how reliable is this book? If it's so old and we no longer have the original autographs, exactly how much can it be trusted? Throughout the centuries have men played with it to the point that today it bears little, if any, resemblance to what God originally gave? If that's true, we're all lost. Because if God's going to open on the day of judgment some book which I nor you currently have, and if we're going to be judged by what's in that book, what hope do any of us have? But if you turn that logic around, it impresses upon us just how grand a thing it is to have a preserved book like this one. If it really is the Word of God, if it really is the will of heaven, if it really is the very judgment by which we each should be judged, and it is true, that is the case. Then you and I should have the greatest of respect for it. So let's speak for a moment about the reliability of it. We had a lesson here, at least I delivered a lesson uh, roughly a year and a half ago. And as a part of that lesson, we at least looked somewhat at the thought of the reliability of the Word of God. But it seems like here might be a time to revisit it in the current context. You'll notice at the top I've listed some ancient writers. Individuals like Plato and individuals like Tacitus, Socrates and Homer, 
Sophocles, and of course you could add many others to it. There are individuals whose ancient writings in one way or another are so regarded today, and there are those scholars and universities especially, who in fact will lift so high the banner of a writer like Thucydides or one of these I've listed. And the question might be, so how does the Bible compare in reliability to one of them? How does the Word of God, as you and I have it, compare in reliability? The next few statements on that slide are these. There are those who have taken the liberty of compiling a listing, a consideration, if you please, about the issues concerning reliability. In fact, I think we each can be impressed that there is a means whereby a percentage consideration can be given to how reliable is an ancient document. Is it 50% reliable? 80% reliable? 97% reliable? It seems to me it would be worthwhile for you and I to rest in impressiveness as we give thought to where would the Bible fit in such a reckoning. You'll notice on that slide there is a listing or at least a record about the organization from which some of the statistics that I'm about to give was taken. The Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. If you wish to look on the web, their website at some point, you'll probably be impressed with how much data is there. C-A-R-M, again, is how it's often uh, referenced. But please note the next slide. This slide lists for you Names out at the far left, again, ancient writers that in many cases are so highly respected. And then in the columns that follow are a few pieces of information about that writing. For example, Lucretius, you'll notice he died 55 B.C. or so. And to date, the time span between when he lived until the time of the oldest copy of his writings that we have, is 1,100 years. You'll notice we only have two copies of his writings. That's it. Two copies. Clearly that impresses us, it seems to me, each of us with just how limited the number of copies of those ancient writings of Lucretius actually are. So few are the copies that really there isn't even enough data to compile a numeric quantitative estimate of its accuracy. May I say that if the Bible were in a category then like that, we would have every reason to have very little assurance or confidence that this Bible is really is the way God gave it. Look down the list. We won't look at all of them. What if you pick, let's say, the fifth one down? Again, here is one living from 480 to 425 B.C., Herodotus. Going from then until the time of the earliest copy we've got, 1,300 years elapsed. Looking out to the right, we have a whopping eight copies of his writings. That's it. Eight. One more time, so little data, you really can't even put together a quantitative estimate of its accuracy. As you jump to the bottom of that slide, in each of these instances, we may notice if these writers are that highly regarded and that highly respected, we must be intrigued again as to where the Bible fits. Let's turn the page because this listing goes onward. As you start reading from the top down, 
you come to writings like Aristotle. Let me impress you with Aristotle in many cases. Our students in colleges are asked to read Aristotle, to appreciate his writings, to memorize sections of it, and to be able to express those ideas on an exam. And yet, in the writings of Aristotle, we have 49 copies. That's all we have. And here's a writer who is regarded as one of the greatest thinkers of all time. Scientific matters often are taken back to his day, and they're highlighted with the reality of just what an imposing figure he was philosophically. And there's only 49 copies. By now, why don't we go to the bottom? What about that New Testament that you're holding? The 27 books of the New Testament, they are an ancient docu set of documents as well, written between 50 and 100 A.D. You'll notice, if you read across that particular slide, less than 100 years from the actual time of the writing to the time of the, most, of the oldest manuscripts and the oldest references we have. A hundred years, in fact, less than that, such a small amount compared to these others, and yet they are regarded. And look at the number of copies that we have of the Bible. Just a shade less than 6,000 copies, and quite frankly, my suspicion is that number is probably a little higher than that now. What about the accuracy of the Word of God, even by the standards of those scholars who would read it? Not far from 100%. Over 99.5%. Is the New Testament reliable? Is it trustworthy? Can one base one's eternal hope and salvation upon it? And that answer is an overwhelming yes. The history of the Bible is a fascinating thing, isn't it? No wonder as you and I read in passages like 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, Now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The thing that Paul referenced as perfect was the completion of the inspired Word of God. And when that which was perfect was come, and thanks be unto God, now it has, then all those things that were shortcomings of it, they have all been done away, such as miracles and the matters in that category. And you and I can look upon the completed, the finished Word of God and base our life fully upon it having the greatest assurance of its reliability, its correctness, its trustworthiness. Surely in light of all those things, we may close our lesson then and do so with this final set of statements. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. It claims that on so many occasions, both in the Old and New Testaments. And with it, we appreciate that the inspiration housed within it does not rest with humanity. The verbal plenary inspired character of the Word of God. That literally means that it is the Word of God and that it is absolutely complete in what it has. Never any book's going to be added to it. Never any chapters, not even any words going to be added to it. Every word. The lesson text that was read tonight was this one. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
the closing thought then of our lesson will be another statement from a different writer, this one from Peter. For in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, he says, According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. You and I have been given all things. God has seen to it. Now let me say that there's another lesson yet to come. And so we'll look at installment three in this next Sunday evening. And as we do so, our questions will be slightly different. We will take a slightly different perspective on this matter of the Word of God. And we'll see if we can appreciate its history from a slightly different vantage point. I hope we'll each be enthralled and thrilled to give that consideration then. But for tonight, might we say that again, if the Bible is correct in all those matters we raised earlier, like history and geography, if it's fully checked and absolutely correct in all references in those matters, then when it makes a statement about things that are wrong and evil and that I'm going to stand before God in judgment, shouldn't I have the greatest of courages and confidences that that's also correct? There is coming a day of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Are you ready for that judgment? Am I? Being prepared for that judgment means obey the gospel initially and then live faithfully till death. It might be there's someone in this audience who has begun the journey. You started strongly in the life of Christ, but perhaps in recent weeks or perhaps months or even years, that no longer is true. Why not come back to your first love? Realize that the Lord Jesus Christ hanged on a cross taking your place. He shed His blood that you might have the opportunity to be saved. Don't turn your back upon Him. He said, didn't He? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. If your heart is yearning with the loss of what you once had but no longer have, come back tonight. Beseech the prayers of brethren to God on your behalf. Confess those things and repent of them and God will forgive them. Baby, you've never become a Christian, though tonight would be a great night to start. What better day could there be than this one, the 26th of March, 2017? If we could help you tonight, believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Messiah. Repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And as you come forth from that watery grave, you will have been made a new individual, a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And upon your faithfulness until death, heaven's your home. Jesus promised it. If we could help you tonight in your response to the gospel, we'd be delighted to do so, letting the Bible be your guide. If we can help you, let us do it at once while together we stand while we sing.